Would you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word? Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Aliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, in the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we open your word, as we consider the covenant you made with Abraham, instill in us an assurance, just as you did with Abraham. Help us to know that you are a God who cares about our faith, that you want to strengthen us for the work you've given us in this life now before we experience paradise. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, picture this. You're in line at the DMV. You've been given number 15. You look at the counters and you see they got seven workers and you're thinking, this is amazing. I'm going to get out of here in no time. So you go and you take your seat and you understand that the DMV has made a promise to you. You know that when the TV chimes and displays the number 15, you will be served. But before that promise is realized, there's tension. So you're sitting there on Facebook, you're scrolling past the latest proposals and pictures of children and some news. Then you hear the TV chime. And what's it say? Number 14. And you think, all right, it's not my turn, but at least I know that I'm next. So you go back to scrolling, and then you hear the TV chime again. You look up, and what's it say? Number 47. <laughs> and you say, now wait a minute. What's going on here? And it chimes again, and what does it read? Serving number 33. And you realize you have no idea when your number will be called. So you sit there in the uneasy tension of not knowing when you'll be served. I'll give you another one. You and the family, you pack up the van to head up to New Hampshire. You're going to Sandy Island. <laughs> Dad promised that we're going to get there tonight. Sandy Island is the promised land, okay? Two hours go by, and what does the kid say? Are we there yet? <laughs> Are we there yet? Dad, you said we're going to get there tonight. We've been on the road a long time. I don't see any water. Right? That is a question born out of tension to a promise unrealized. I'll give you one more. Your spouse is going away for a few weeks, but they've made a promise. I will come back. Three weeks from now, you will see me again and they leave. Fast forward two weeks in, and you miss them dearly. Since they've left, you've been counting down the days of their return. Now, they've given you the promise. They've given you the information. You know, the flight number, the terminal, and when they're set to land at Logan. But that doesn't take away the longing that you feel. And you know what holds you over in situations like that is when you discover a postcard in the mail something you can pick up and read for yourself, a tangible, palpable reminder of their commitment to return home to you. It's an assurance that the promise will be kept. All these examples convey a tension we can feel when we're in the middle, in the space between a promise made and a promise kept. This is where we find Abraham in Genesis 15. God has made promises to Abraham, and not one of them has come to pass. Abraham expresses the tension he feels in the form of questions, and it's in response to Abraham's tension that God makes a covenant, providing Abraham with the most certain, immovable assurance that what God says will come to pass demonstrating that the fulfillment of promise depends entirely on God. And it's an assurance not only for Abraham, but for you and for me. Well, as we get into it, I want to give you a map, so to speak, so you know where we're headed. We're covering a whole chapter, and we're going to take it in two parts. There's a lot going on here. 
We'll start with verses 1 to 8, which will cover our section on question and promise. And then the rest of the chapter, verses 9 to 21, will cover our last section on covenant and commitment. So look with me, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And let's just acclimate ourselves to where Abraham is at right now. Clearly, some things have just taken place. Abraham, as a person, is only introduced to us three chapters earlier in the book of Genesis, but a lot has happened. And so here's the life of Abraham in a nutshell. At age 75, Abraham leaves his people and all he knows after God calls him. Right away, Abraham makes a dumb mistake handing over his wife to Pharaoh out of fear, but thankfully God sets that situation right and they're off again. But the drama doesn't stop. There's some conflict between Abraham and his nephew Lot. It's a bit like a scene out of a western, a this town ain't big enough for the two of us sort of situation. But there's no bloodshed, and the men agree to part ways. And then a local skirmish takes place, and Lot ends up being taken away by one of the kings, and so Abraham risks his own life to go and save him. So suffice it to say that things have not been smooth sailing for Abraham since Genesis 12. It's after all of that that the word of the Lord comes to him. Now, notice that. Notice this at the outset. It is God who comes to Abraham. God initiates the conversation. You see, God is witnessing everything Abraham is going through. And he starts by giving Abraham a word of promise. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In light of everything that Abraham is going through, this word should be heard as words of comfort. God knows that where Abraham is at, discouragement can set in. And in light of what's taken place thus far, I can't help but notice this approach that God takes. His approach is one of a loving parent toward a discouraged child. The discouragement of Abraham is evident in his reply. Look at verses 2 and 3 that capture this. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So you can hear the distress, you can hear the worry in Abraham. Now, let's be clear about where he's coming from. Abraham's problem is one of faith. He is doubting what God has promised. He is struggling to hold on to the promise, but those struggles are struggles of belief. Abraham's questions are raised because he believes in God. He believes God when God says he has promises for Abraham, but he's having a hard time reconciling what God has said with what he's experiencing right now. And so what does he do? He expresses his frustration and worry to God. You said you're going to make my name great. You said you're going to make me into a great nation. But God, I've got no son. It's a hard situation. 
Do you know what it's like to be childless? Do you know friends who have attempted to conceive for months or years without success? Have you witnessed the glimmers of hope a couple has turn into grief when their attempts fail again and again? It shouldn't take much for us to connect to the frustrations of Abraham. He knows what God has said, but he can't see it. And just as he began in verse 1, God will patiently, lovingly engage Abraham and begin to instill in Abraham assurance. Look at verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. God doubles down on the promise. I like how the NIV captures this response. The NIV says, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. God is leaving no room for confusion. He strongly re-emphasizes the promise of offspring. Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 5. And this detail is so easy to miss. It's so easy to read past it quickly. But look how it starts. And he brought him outside. It's such a small detail, but again, it highlights the intentional, loving initiative of God. Now, after reading verses 2 and 3, you think maybe there'd be a stern word because Abraham has just blown up at God. But God's response is so brilliant. And here's my paraphrase of what's going on. Abraham says, you've given me a promise, but I don't see it. God replies, I'm giving you the promise again, and come, I want to show you something. See, God's responses deal exactly with what Abraham is wrestling with. So God takes him outside and says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. I have not had the pleasure of seeing the night sky with no light pollution, where with your naked eye you could look up and make out the Milky Way. But if you have had that sort of opportunity, I'd wager that you'd say it was a scene you won't soon forget. Why? Because images can only capture so much, right? There's something to the experience of actually being there, where the scene before you is expansive, filling your peripheral vision. So when God brings Abraham outside to behold the heavens and says to him, so shall your offspring be, that is a divine act of assurance for Abraham. As one theologian puts it, God grounds the invisible promise by connecting it with a visible sign. Now, every time Abraham steps out of his tent and he sees the stars, he's to remember that God assured him of the promise. And it's after standing under that starry night that we get this important response in verse 6. And Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now again, after reading verse 6, 
you'd think, you know, this would be a good place to stop right here. It seems like God convinced Abraham. But the promise of offspring is just one of the promises he gave to Abraham back in Genesis 12. So in verse 7, God brings up another promise, the promise of land. And just as the first time around, Abraham asks the question. In verse 7, he says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Again, we hear the struggle in Abraham. He's got something now to grasp onto for assurance when it comes to the promise of offspring. He can look to the stars. But he lacks that same sort of palpable assurance when it comes to the land promise. So what does God do? He continues to address Abraham's tension with assurance. And the way God does this is by making a covenant. And this brings us to verse 9. Nine to the end on covenant and commitment. Now to the modern reader, God's response in verse 9 can seem completely disconnected to Abraham's problem. Abraham asks a question, and God says, go and get me some animals. And we can understand Abraham saying, what do you mean, go get some animals? I'm, I'm asking you about a land promise, not dinner, right? But the disconnect is not between God and Abraham, but between our world and Abraham's world. And so to understand the significance of this event, I want to quickly explain the ancient cultural custom at work here. Most, if not all of us, have heard of the term covenant before. And most of us would understand what a covenant ceremony is, right? Weddings are technically covenant ceremonies. Well, in verses 9 to 22, what we witness is a covenant ceremony. And just like a wedding, there is in order to things. You have to have certain things there, and you have to have certain people there to do it. And a covenant, after all, is an agreement between two or more persons. Well, in the ancient world, one, of the co one way covenants were made was between suzerains and vassals. And I know both of those words sound like they're straight out of Dr. Seuss, so think of it like this. Covenants being made between masters and servants. Masters being the suzerains and servants being the vassals. And the custom of the day, just as our passage has it, would be to gather animals, cut them in two, and lay them so that there's a path to pass through the slain pieces. It's a bloody scene, but that's the point. An agreement would be made between both parties, and there would be obligations on both sides, so, for example, a master would say something like, You, servant, swear to serve me your whole life, and I, your master, in return will give you protection and agreement. And to confirm that covenant, the master and servant would together pass through the pieces, in effect, each saying, If I break the covenant, be it done unto me as we have just done unto these animals." If I break the covenant, know that I've agreed to being slain for doing so. Scholar O'Palmer Robinson calls this an oath of self-malediction. An oath of self-malediction. Okay, so let's bring it back. Genesis 15. Far from being a disconnected response, Abraham knows exactly what God is asking when he tells him to go and gather certain animals. 
And we can say this about Abraham because in verse 9, God only tells Abraham to gather animals. But in verse 10, we see that Abraham not only gathers them, but he cuts them and lays them in place. So in Abraham's mind, he's seen this before. He's thinking, okay, I know what a covenant is. God and I are going to make an agreement. We're going to walk through these things together, and then I can be sure that I'm going to get the land. But before he gets a chance to do so, deep sleep falls on him. And not only that, verse 12 also says, Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. What do those details tell us? They're telling us that God has just shown up. Abraham's experience is a bit like Isaiah's in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah, after witnessing God's holiness, says, Woe is me! So God shows up and gives Abraham specific details about the promises of land and offspring. And what God says about the promise can be broken up into two parts. So verse 13 foretells of the the bondage of Abraham's offspring, that they will experience it. While then verses 14 to 16 foretells of the redemption his offspring will experience as well, with his offspring eventually inheriting the land in the fourth generation. And from there, we get the unexpected, surprising action of God. Look at verse 17 and 18 with me. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. What we see in verse 17 is God alone passing between the pieces. Think about how significant this is. God alone is taking on the oath of self-malediction. God alone is bearing the burden of faithfulness and fulfillment of this covenant. When God walks between the pieces, he's saying, may it be done unto me as we have just done unto these animals, if I do not keep this promise to Abraham. Here's how one scholar puts it. This covenant demonstrates how far God will go to give Abraham a sign that the promise really will be fulfilled. God will not be able to get out of it because it would involve risking God's own life. It is a figure of speech, but it says something profound. God's very own being is put on the line when God makes a promise. If God does not keep it, God ceases to be God. One way or another, therefore, God has to work out how to do it. So to the ancient reader, God's actions are earth-shattering. They're mind-blowing. In the ancient Near East, gods were witnesses to human covenants. God maybe, gods maybe were even involved in, in covenants demanding servitude for men. But never, never did gods solely enter in covenants, taking on all of the covenant obligation. But Yahweh, the God of Abraham, in response to his struggles, again uses something familiar to Abraham to provide assurance of the promises. Now Abraham knows 
for certain that God himself will see it through. And this is something that the entire chapter has been building up to and what we can appreciate now. Verse 1, God is the one who comes to Abraham. He's the one who starts the conversation. Verse 5, God is the one who leads Abraham outside, who begins to instill insurance in Abraham. Verse 9, God begins the covenant ceremony, asking Abraham to gather the animals. And then verse 17, it's God alone who walks between the pieces. That tells us something about God. And so here's the point for us, right? Like Abraham, we are dependent on God alone for the fulfillment of promise. We're dependent on God alone for the fulfillment of promise. In Hebrews, in that famous chapter where the author describes the hall of faith as it's been regarded, he describes Abraham in this way. By faith, this is chapter 11, verse 9. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And not much later, the author adds, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So when we talk about promise, right, or, or, or promises, we can mean a lot of things. If you've read your Bible, you know God has made a lot of promises to us. But I want to focus on a promise brought up here in that Hebrews passage that also relates to Abraham in our Genesis passage. Abraham, by the time he died, he only owned his burial plot, as well as Sarah's. That's all the land he possessed, enough for two coffins, so to speak. But as the author of Hebrews states, he desired, he was looking forward to a better country, a heavenly one. That is a longing, a desire that we share in, isn't it? In the very last book of the Bible, John writes these familiar words of promise. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's a promise. And that is a promise unrealized. We don't experience that right now. Right now, there is weeping. Right now, there is death. Right now, we live in the uncomfortable in-between where we know what God has said, but we don't experience it fully. 
right? The tension we can feel by living in that space between promise made and promise kept can make our faith waver. We know the verses. We know the truth that God will set things right. We know in the end that we will live with God in a condition better than that of Eden. But knowing all of that doesn't insulate us from experiencing very real pain in the present. And if our pain, our struggles, and our doubts go unaddressed, they will have consequences on our faith. But just like Abraham, God has not left us to ourselves. He has given us means of assurance. You know, as with Abraham in prayer, we can bring our hardest, most painful questions to God. That is what Abraham did, and it is what we should do as well. As we've noticed together, God is a loving, patient God. We don't have to have it all together just to talk to him. We can be honest with any and all questions we have that will wage war against our faith and our assurance. And so do so. Raise such questions, knowing that it is perfectly appropriate to raise hard questions as a Christian, as someone who believes in God. We should not quickly equate such hard questions with unbelief. Or think that bringing hard questions to God is an indication of weak faith. Far from it. Instead, you will find yourself in good company. So in addition to simply talking to God, which we must do, God has given us also signs of assurance. In Abraham's life, God will continue to do this. If you simply look at the next chapter... Right? We see Abraham mess up, trying to have a son by someone other than Sarah. And if I had time, I would explain in greater detail how God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision as a bodily, physical reminder of God's promise to give him offspring, yet again providing him with a sign of assurance. Well, in the life of the church today, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are our signs of assurance. They are physical, palpable signs that remind us of what God has done and what he will do. God has given those physical signs to be grasped by our eyes and our hands in order to assure us anew each time they are practice of God's promises to us. All right, we've been talking a lot about promises this morning and how God alone will bring them to fulfillment and how God intends to build up assurance. But all of that is reserved for those who are counted righteous. You remember verse 6. For those who believe in God. And now, more specifically, for those who believe in Christ. One of our big issues now, for everyone, 
is acting like we're the only ones who walk through the pieces. As if the fulfillment of promise is dependent on us. You know, people might read or hear that passage from Revelation where John delivers that glorious promise of heaven and think to themselves, all I have to do is be good enough. I just need to say the right things, live the right way, not hurt anyone, and I'll be all set. It's the classic works-based dilemma that if I just work enough, I can earn a spot in paradise, but that option is not available to us. That's the way things were in the garden. That's not the case anymore. You see, ever since our first parents fell and sin entered the world, we all became covenant breakers with Adam. Not one of us can meet the covenant obligations first given to him. We need a new Adam. So what can we do? We can do exactly as Abraham did. Believe. Believe in Christ. Having complete dependence on him for the fulfillment of promise. Christ alone lived a perfect, sinless life. And just like God alone passed between the pieces, so also Christ alone went to the cross to bear the penalty of sin for every one of his covenant breakers. And it is Christ alone who is raised from the dead and is seated on the throne. So our entire faith has been a God-driven, God-accomplished, God-centered accomplishment. We cannot secure our own salvation. We cannot bring about fulfillment. We can't do it, but Christ has shown us that he has, he can, and he will. So the imperative for us is to believe in Christ today and every day. And find assurance in the one who began a good work and will bring it to completion, as Paul will say in Philippians. That is our hope. And it's a hope that instills in us assurance. God alone did it. And God alone will do it again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for who you are as a God who instills assurance in the ones he cares for. God, help us to never forget that the promises you have given are dependent on you alone. May those promises again build assurance in us that it is not dependent on us. Let us look to you always as the founder and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.